Folks, if you're here for the first time, I, can I extend the welcome? My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. It's great to have you with us. And you join us on a week where we, we come to an end of a little series that we've been doing on lament. Lament being a, a prayer in pain that leads us to trust in God. And we've called our series Giving Voice to Pain. And it was our hope when we embarked on this series that we would be able to to freely and biblically understand what it means to lift our agony to God and to trust that he would meet us there. So I trust and I hope that that's been your experience individually and collectively in your gospel communities and hopefully we've been able to show that God's word, through God's word, the biblical lament is how we walk and how we process living as Christians in the midst of a broken world. And when we, when we thought about this series, one of the reasons why we wanted to do it was because we recognized that as a church, we didn't have a rhythm for lament. We don't have a rhythm as a church of what it looks like both corporately and also individually to bring our pain towards God, knowing that actually God has given ways for us and language for us in his word to help us do that. And our hope is that as a church, through the days, weeks, months, and years, that this rhythm of lamenting, coming with honest thoughts, raw feelings, the brokenness of the world, that there is a safeness amongst us as God's people to bring it to him in whose hand we are safe. Because God wants us to bring that. And one way that I want to encourage you guys of doing that, if you're able, is to purchase this book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament by Mark Rogop, I think, Verogop or something, I don't know, I don't even know where he's from, so he's American with a, with a name that I can't pronounce, all right, Rogop, and I want to encourage you to get hold of this, Paul and I read this book independently of each other, we just did, and we both came together and said this is something that we need to walk through as a church, and if you pick this book up and you read through it, you'll see there are the things that I've shared and Paul shared that have come directly from the book, it's been nothing but an encouragement to me, to Paul, and I hope to you also. So can I encourage you, why don't you get hold of this? Spend some time reading it through it. Re, you know, remind yourself of some of the things that we've been doing over the last two months. And if you struggle, if you're struggling to get hold of anything like this, for whatever reason, come and see us, and we will help you out in that. So we're going to bring this series to a conclusion, and what we've been doing over the last few weeks is looking at the book of Lamentations, and just to bring people up to speed, Lamentations is uh, a lament from the prophet Jeremiah, and what he was observing as the cause of this lament was that he was observing the captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem, and God's people being taken off into, into exile, and the five chapters are five different poems. And this week, we're going to see how lament reveals and how lament comforts. So grab your Bibles, turn to Lamentations 4 and 5. I'm going to pray, and then we'll bring this series to an end. Father in heaven, we praise and thank you for your word. We thank you that it is breathed, by, breathed out by you. And every word is profitable for us today for re, re, uh, correction, reproof, uh, encouragement for instruction. And we ask that by your spirit, you would do that. But I also ask that this would not be a process for our heads, that this would impact our hearts and our affections so that we would love Jesus more. Help us, we pray, for your glory's sake. Amen. 
Before I became a pastor, I worked for a Christian relief and development organization called Samaritan's Pairs International. My job was I'm the, I was the national development manager, so I traveled all over Africa and all over Eastern Europe, partnering with churches and working with churches who were trying to share the gospel in their context, but also trying to meet the needs of people uh, in their cities and, and, and in their villages and in their, in their towns. And there was this one occasion where I found myself in Moscow, Russia, unexpectedly on my own. My thought was that I was going to be meeting with somebody, and when I was there, we were going to be having meetings over the course of a week. But I found myself on my own in, the, in, in Moscow for about three days. Now, I wasn't in Red Square. I wasn't in the center. I was actually outside of uh, Moscow's an enormous city. So I found myself right outside. Now, what was interesting about my time there was that I could get by in the center because all the Russian language was also sort of in phonetic as well. So you could read something and go, okay, that makes sense. As soon as you went out a few miles, it was all in Russian. And Russian is a crazy language. There's about four 40 odd different, 40 odd letters to their alphabet, and it just makes no sense whatsoever. And folks, this was before the days of Netflix or streaming things on your phone. I had like a little, I think it was like a Nokia thing that, you know, you could play Snake on. Remember Snake? Remember Snake? That's what I entertained myself for three days in a Russian. And I found myself in Moscow. Now, what's interesting is, folks, that being an English speaker, I know that you know some of you doubt that because of my accent, but being an English speaker basically means wherever you go in the world, other people speak English. So actually, it's easy to get by. But I found myself in a part of Moscow when nobody was prepared to speak English to me. And I felt alone. I felt alone. I felt on my own for three days. And I, and, and I can get by in cities. I've done it a long time, but I wasn't expected to do that. So I had no money. I had no phone. I had no DVDs to play. The TV was all in Russian. I felt very much on my own, and it exposed some things. I got picked up after those three days by the person that I I thought that I was meeting, and I thought, great, now the meetings can start. She said, I'm awfully sorry, Steve, we're not able to to meet anymore, so what we're going to do is we're going to take you to a holiday home in the country so that you'll be a bit more comfortable. Now, folks, this holiday home wasn't like St. Ives or Abbasoch. This was, was a nice house, but it was in the middle of nowhere, right next to this sort of forest. And we arrived late. I went to bed and I woke up and there was this note on, 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 on the, the, the table of the kitchen. Hi, Steve. We're really sorry. We're going to be away for three days. And we're really sorry. <laughs> the electricity has gone off. That means that the water pump doesn't work. So for three days, I found myself, a further three days, I found myself on my own again, but not in a city where there's, I could just walk around and see other human beings, literally on my own in the middle of the Russian countryside with no electricity and no water. And I had a laptop and I was doing a little bit, there's no internet, but I just thought, well, I'll do, you know, I'll do something. And then that died and I was, they had DVDs, but they were in Russian and I smelled after three days. In fact, on the second day, I was woken up by this massive Russian guy with a big beard. And as I woke up, all I saw him was holding a mushroom and a knife. And he just looked at me like this and he was like, uh, uh. So I was like, yeah, whatever that means, I'm going to do it. All right, okay? So I followed him out, and I, I quickly got onto the fight. He gave me a knife, a bag with mushrooms in, and we went into the forest cutting mushrooms, cutting mushrooms. I thought, okay, this is a bit different. I thought 20 minutes, four and a half hours. I walked around the forest in Russia with a guy that did not speak English. What was amazing, though, in that time, I, he figured out, and I figured out, 
that I used to be a policeman and he used to be a policeman and then it all went a little bit strange when he told me he was in the KGB. I got really scared at that point. But anyway, now that's a funny story, folks, but I found myself very much a foreigner in that country. Very much so. I found myself a stranger in that land. Now, it's a funny story, but one of the things that I, when I sort of, sort of um, reflect on that, that six days, what becomes very apparent is that that revealed in me and to me the things that I deem important. And not only the things that I deem important, it sort of revealed to me, and if I'm honest, the things that I would struggle to live without, like hot water. <laughs> now, it wasn't a moment of pain and suffering like we've been talking about over the last couple of months. Not, not, not at all. But it did reveal to me the things that I hold dear, but it also revealed to me the things that I hold onto. The things that I hold onto. Now, if I'd have had that same experience by having three days in London and three days in the Cotswolds, I don't think those things will be revealed to me in the same way. Now, the situation that Jeremiah is lamenting over is the invasion, the destruction, and the captivity of God's people. And God's people found themselves as foreigners in another land, in a different country, a country that was not theirs. They became slaves of that nation. They found themselves alone, not in their home, and what they held dear had gone. It had gone. Now, folks, I was on my own in Moscow because of bad planning and bad communication, but God's people found themselves as exiles because of their sin, because of their disobedience to God, their rejection of him, and the replacing of him with other things. The replacing of him with other things. So when we look through chapter 4, we see that during the process of lament, the things that God people valued, we'll see that. We see the things that God people, God's people valued at the time, above all things. But we will also see that those things were unable to deliver and come through at the moment of their suffering. See, folks, lament reveals to us the idols in our lives. When we lament, it reveals to us the idols in our lives. Idols which are obvious and or idols that seem to lay dormant till crisis hits. Now, what do I mean by idols? Now, I think this pastor, Tim Keller, explains this in the best way. He says this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and an imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And folks, the true test of idolatry is our response when those things are lost. Our response, is it sorrow or is it despair? And Tim Keller makes a distinction between sorrow and despair. He says, sorrow comes from losing one good thing amongst others. But despair, however, is unconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. An ultimate thing. Life is now not worth living because I have lost that ultimate thing. 
See, these idols for some of us are obvious, but for some, they lay dormant until suffering comes. In the book, what you'll see, he gives this wonderful illustration. He says, the dormant idols come to the service in the midst of crisis. It's like when you have a clear bottle of water, and it's nice and clear, but at the bottom of the water is this buildup of sediment, gravel, sand. And he says, you can see right through the water. It's nice and clean. But all you have to do is shake the water, the bottle, and the sediment starts to move and starts to stain the water. It starts to mix in, and no longer is the water clear. The dormant sediment in the midst of crisis contaminates the water. The dormant idol in the midst of crisis contaminates the water. See, lament reveals to us what are the objects of trust we have our fingers wrapped around. It shines the spotlight on things or people in which we place too much trust. Now let me explain that it's not only the crisis that reveals that, but the process of lament, the process of actually turning to God and walking to God in the midst of our pain. And as we walk, that enables us, and it enables us to give voice to pain And as we step into lament, there is a sense of, as we do this, we are being intentional as we do it. I want to talk to Christian people, Christians, folks. As Christians, God has said, turn to me, complain, ask, and you will find trust. So the process of lament is what we do as Christian people. So there is an intentionality, even in our complaints and our asking, is that we move to him. And as we move to him, we intentionally move towards wanting to grow in trust of him. And that process of lament reveals to us the dormant idols within our lives. It brings up those things that are at the bottom of the water bottle and in the midst of the crisis and the process of lament, it reveals to us and brings to the surface the things or the people in which we perhaps place too much hope. And in chapter 4, we see some of those things surfacing as Jeremiah encourages God's people through his lament. One of those things is their financial security. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Jeremiah says this, How the gold has grown to him. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Now, folks, Jerusalem was the spiritual and economic center of Israel. The gold, the precious stones, the jewels were all all statements of their wealth and their influence. And gold is mentioned there because gold was always connected to glory. If there was lots of gold, there was lots of glory. There was lots of power. There was lots of wealth. But here is Jeremiah lamenting because the city and the temple that had the gold, that had the jewels, that had this statement of wealth lies in ruins. See, their security of wealth, money, affluence had gone. It'd gone. See, Jeremiah is lamenting over what has been lost. But he's also in the process of lamenting is recognizing is that any trust that they had in the temple and its gold had vanished. Had vanished. Folks, I don't have to tell you that money has power. 
only has power. There's a reason why 25% of the parables that Jesus taught are based on money. It has power. See, money has the power to provide a sense of security, doesn't it? Sense of security. I'm secure because the power of money, and I have some of it, is put away there. Therefore, I have this sense of security. It provides a sense of security. And the power of money gives us options. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that. The more money you have, the more things you can do. The more money you have, the bigger house you can have. The more money you have, the more cars you can have. The more money you have, the more holidays they can go on. All those things are wonderful things. Folks, hear me. I'm not saying that money is bad, but money has power. It gives you options. Money creates identity. It creates identity. It's interesting. I traveled all over Eastern Europe and I traveled all over Africa. And wherever I went to certain places, as a white man who worked for a Christian relief organization, the identity that was assumed of me was that I had money. And compared to them, I did. And the power dynamics was so obvious. See, money has the power to fuel self-sufficiency. I don't need, I don't, I don't need anybody because this is what I have. I don't need the church. I don't need the charity. I don't need the help. I have this. Look what I've got. I can provide for this. I can pay for this. I can do this. We've got this. We're okay. I'm okay. There's a sense of self-sufficiency because I have this. Put aside. Put aside. It's interesting. Jesus shares a parable, doesn't he, about that? But a man that had so much, and he built barns and barns and barns, and he said, I will drink, eat and drink and be merry, enjoy my life. And what does God say? You fool. Your life will be required of you. There was nothing in his wealth that enabled him to avoid the ultimate end for him. And money has the power to become the ultimate object of trust in our lives. And folks, when loss or uncertainty enter the question, it's remarkable how quickly the, this idol rears its ugly head. And folks, can I say this? Whether you have money or not, whether you have money or not, this idol of financial security rears its head. Because the security of money or the fear of financial loss can become a functional God. A functional God. But in this, we also see what the people here held dear to, what they trusted in terms of wealth and financial security. But we also see that that trust in their wealth and financial security hasn't helped them. It couldn't help them. It can't help them. Because now the gold is still there, but it's dim. The stones lie scattered everywhere. And Jeremiah laments the loss, but he also sees the inadequacy of trusting those things. See, folks, a lament penetrates the vault of self-sufficiency and shows us the spiritual bankruptcy of trust and trusting financial security. When we turn to God in the midst of our pain and suffering, what we are experiencing shudders the sediment of idolatry 
and it raises to the surface the things that we hold dear to and we hold around that we put more trust in than God and God graciously reveals them to us on the process of lament to trust him. Financial security. We see here people being saviors, other people being saviors. Lying in the rubble of Jerusalem was not only the gold, but also any hope that the leaders, could, the leaders of Israel could fix the mess of the people's lives. And another idol that can come to the service during hardship is, fi- is finding and putting our hope in other people. Whether that be politicians, religious leaders, sports teams, let me put that with you, all right? Sports teams, sports managers, our spouses, our parents, our children, our grandchildren, See, what was happening, this is what was coming to the surface as Jeremiah lamented, verse 2. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. These were weighty, influential people. How now they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. See, the culture is completely being destroyed all around Jeremiah, all around God's people, and there was no one able to stop it, however influential they were. Says verse 5, even those of wealth and influence were ravaging in the ashes heaps and the, as the city was being burned down. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Those who had the money, those who had the influence, those who had the power to maybe stop it in which the people put their trust in now are also in the ash heaps. And those who were the most Impressive people in the culture, verses seven and eight, now have become as dry wood. Those that others look to because of their beauty and because of their their power and because of their influence, maybe the influences of the day through the Instagram of Jerusalem or whatever it may be, others look to them for their hope and for their dreams to bring them out of this mess, but they find themselves as dry wood. And folks, verse 20, even the ultimate person in Jerusalem, the king himself, in whom the people said we will hide under the shadow of his wings, was unable to save them. You'll read in Jeremiah, King Zedekiah, his eyes were gouged out, all his children were slaughtered, and he was taken into captivity. Even God's anointed king of his people was unable to help these people. See, folks, seasons of uncertainty and loss reveal the vanity of putting our ultimate trust in anyone other than God. And it reveals to us the limitations of human leadership and influence. It just does. But this is not only seen in those who are in positions of influence and power and politics, but this is also seen in the midst of friendship. Now, I'm not talking about the right expectation that Christian brothers and sisters should have on each other. I'm talking about that lament can reveal that the pain and suffering has brought to the surface that you may have unhealthy expectations of your friends. Now, hear me. There is an expectation as brothers and sisters to limp along together whatever the circumstances to put ourselves underneath them and put their arms over us and to carry them. And for some, 
that will mean a lifetime. That is the expectation of what it is to be a friend. That is the expectation of what it is to be a brother and sister in Christ. That is the expectation, and that is a right expectation. But what I'm talking about here is the unhealthy expectation that you make that person or those persons your savior and your refuge. See, folks, when people become our functional saviors, we expect them to fill a gap only God can fill, and to ask any human to step into that is unfair. It's totally unfair because those people will let you down. They will do. But folks, if you want to know if this is a dormant idol, just think how you respond towards people, whether in your heart or even out loud, when they don't meet the expectations you have. See, sometimes in the process of pain and suffering, sorry, in the midst of pain and suffering, as we walk in lament and we complain, sometimes our complaints are about the people that we have put unhealthy expectations on. Allow the sediment of that idol to rise to the surface so that actually you can move to trust him and have him in the rightful place instead of others. See, sadly, often, the people that we set expectations on are the brothers and sisters in Christ who are holding up our arms, often. Lament reveals this and enables us to reorientate our ultimate trust, not in them, not in any other person, but in God alone. We see another one there, comfort. See, Jeremiah sees and laments the erosion um, uh, all around him of any social and, or moral values. See, the people had become cruel and heartless to unimaginable levels. Have a look at that, verses 3 and 4. Even jackals offered the breast they nursed their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. I didn't realize ostriches were that cruel. But anyway, Jeremiah seems to think so. See, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to him. See, the dark cloud of the desperation changed how people were treating each other. And people were treating each other even to the worst example that children were not even being fed by their parents. There was a complete unraveling of the social fabric, complete unraveling of the moral values. And Jeremiah uses lament to shine a light on the brokenness of the culture and mourns of how far God's people have come. We've said this a few times, that lament enables us to see the world how God sees it. And folks, and one of the idols that stop us from seeing it is the idol of cultural comfort. Cultural comfort. We want to fit in. We don't want to rock the boat. We become fearful of speaking up and putting our heads above the parapet. And the desire for peace and safety and security can create a heartless regard for the problems that are lying under the surface of our society. But folks, as in the midst of brokenness, whether there is personal brokenness or the brokenness that we see all outside of us, as we lament over that brokenness of the world, the idol of wanting to be culturally comfort in the midst of it rises to the surface and we start to see and understand, even in the midst of that discomfort, that we are actually foreigners in this world. 
that we are actually sojourners in this world, that when we see people making sense of the world in ways that we cannot fathom, and we see that, we recognize that, that this is not our home. 1 Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Folks, when it talks about abstaining from the passions of the flesh, we always go sexual immorality. It is that. But it's actually the passions of the flesh of where we put other things in the place of God. So it suits us rather than walking in him. What does Peter say? Wage war against those things. And as you live as sojourners, those who travel through, those who live in a place which is not their home, waiting for the home of heaven, keep your conduct among those people, the Gentiles, honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So even though we may live, and even though we might put our heads above the parapet, even though we may walk in the discomfort of what it is to, to, to recognize the breakdown of the social fabric that we find ourselves in, people will fire things. People will think we're bigots. People will think we're evil. People will think we're cruel. And they will speak evil of us. But what does the Bible say? That when Jesus returns, they will then see your good deeds and glorify God when he returns. Issues of abortion. The most vulnerable people in our world are constantly being under attack to be made more vulnerable. Issues of marriage, that the wonderful divine institution of God where one man and one woman come together in human flesh is constantly being broken down and seen as something that is cruel to others. Issues of gender, we're a world that just wants to walk away from the obvious, beautiful, complementary aspects of what it is to be male and what it is to be female and how we live together and complement each other for us to flourish as human beings is constantly being broken down. The issues of the exclusive claims of the gospel. See, all these things, folks, put us in culturally uncomfortable conditions, don't they? But my fear is that the idol of comfort creates a heartless regard to the brokenness of the world, and therefore, we stay under. We stay under. Just a few questions to help us process this and think this through for us individually. Ask yourself, what are the cultural issues you ignore? What has the idol of cultural comfort blinded you from seeing? What is the pain that we're not stepping into? Because the distortion of all these good things, folks, don't bring hope and life. They bring pain. And it is our job as God's people, yes, in the midst of our own pain, to step in. Not to seek the cultural comfort and safety, but to step in. What is the pain that we are not stepping into? Because lament causes us not to ignore the cries of our culture. And folks, 
the rising up of an idol of cultural comfort should lift our eyes to see the brokenness of the culture that is around us. Next one, spiritual leadership. See, Jeremiah in chapter 4 is lamenting over the failure of the spiritual leaders of the people. Let me read this to you, verses 13 to 16. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the, the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. And the Lord himself, he scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. See, chapter 4 in these verses show us that spiritual leaders fall. You see that there? Verse, verse 16, the Lord himself will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, to the favor of the elders, those who had spiritual leadership over God's people. And verse 13, it's because of their sins the people are in this situation. It's because of their poor leadership the people are in this situation. Folks, can I say this? Spiritual leaders fall. And the falling of spiritual leaders has horrendous effects on the church community. Horrendous effects. As a result of that, many people have walked away from the church because of falling leaders. And folks, the past few years, there have been infamous situations where church leaders have fallen. And it's devastated the church community. Some of them, my personal friends. See, folks, the lament of this sort raises up the issue of idolizing people in these positions. It raises them. So can I say this? Please, please, don't idolize your leaders. Don't idolize the pastors, the elders, the GC leaders. Don't idolize them. Please, from the bottom of my heart, pray for them. Pray for them. Hebrews 13 tells us that we are to pray for our leaders and we are to be aware that the leaders, the elders, will give an account for the souls of the people that they care. There is a heaviness and a weightiness to that. Don't idolize, because I'm telling you folks, if you idolize, if you put spiritual leaders on any pedestal, they will fall. They will fall. So pray, knowing that they are only human beings who have weaknesses just like you, the battle flesh, the issues of the flesh, just like you. Just like you. See, we read here, God's people walked into disobedience. They walked into sin. And yes, people are individually responsible, but they had leaders that God had asked, teach them in my ways, teach them and point them to me. And they failed to do that. So don't put your trust in any spiritual leader. Pray for them. Pray for them. If you make me or Paul or the elders God, we will fail you. Period. Because I've not been created or called to take his job. Neither has Paul, neither of the elders, neither of your GC leaders. Love them, trust them, and pray for them. See, folks, the process of lament reveals to us the idols of our hearts. 
And I want us to see that process of those idols coming to the surface as a mercy and grace from God. Not the idols, but the process of those idols coming to the surface as a mercy and grace of God. That God graciously and mercifully has given us a way that in the midst of our pain, when the bottle gets shaken and the sediment rises up, that as we turn to him and we complain and we ask, as we move towards trust in him, he reveals to us the things that we put in the way of that trust. The things that we hold on to too tightly. The things of which we've got a prize our fingers off. The things that we put in the altar position, the things and the people that we've put in God's place instead of him. But in the midst of this, in chapter 4, even in that process, there is hope. Have a look at verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. You see that? He will keep you in exile no longer. See that glimmer of hope? Yeah, he's going to punish your sin. Yeah, he's going to uncover your sin. Yes, he's going to deal, deal with this. And actually, that is merciful and that is gracious, but he's not going to keep you in exile any longer. You see that hope? You see that hope? And then that hope, verse 22, moves us as we move into chapter 5. We move into the midst of this hope and something happens. We go from lament that reveals things in us that actually are summing up to show us that lament in and of itself brings comfort. It brings us comfort. And what we've seen in chapters 1 to chapter 4, it's all been Jeremiah. It's all his observations. It's all his lament. It's all his pain. It's I, and he has done this to me. And now we move into chapter five, where it is us and it's we. It's like Jeremiah has given language to God's people to see the brokenness of what they've been experiencing. And now they move into seeing that process. It's like a little picture of what God has done for us with his word. That as we read these things, we see to recognize, and it gives us language that it goes from reading maybe what the psalmist writes to actually what we have been feeling all along. And we're able to use that language to come to God. I haven't got time to go all through chapter five, but there are three R's that I want us to hold on to in the midst of seeing this comfort. The first R is remember. Lamentations 5, verses 1 and 2. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes, homes to foreigners. You see that? Remember, O Lord. Remember, O Lord. See, God's people are calling him to remember. And this captures an essence of his grace. Remember, they are crying out, remember your, your, your grace. And please, remember your grace even in the midst of our disgrace. See that? Please remember the inheritance that you promised to us. Even in our sin, even in our disgrace, even in the consequences of our brokenness, we are now calling to you to remember your grace and the way that you graciously promised us this inheritance. Folks, as Christian people, our inheritance is found in who Christ is and what Christ has done. And the Bible tells us that we receive every blessings of heaven, of the kingdom of God in and through Christ Jesus. That has been given to us graciously. 
So whatever we walk through, we're able to call to God and ask him to remember his grace, the grace that he has bestowed upon us and the grace that he has promised us in and through the inheritance that is ours. Whatever is going on, whether that is sin that has been committed to you or whether that's sin that you've committed or whether you are just feeling the effects of the brokenness of the world, there is a comfort in lament as we turn to him and say, God, remember your grace. And God's people here are doing that. See, lament looks through the fog of our circumstances for the grace of God's remembrance. Amen? Amen. And lament enables us to call to God to remember who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised. That's the first R. The second R is this, rain. Let me read this for you from verse 15. And this is God's people talking to God together collectively. The joy of our hearts has ceased Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this is our heart. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which is another way of saying Jerusalem, for Mount Zion, which lies desolate, there are now jackals that prowl over it. But you, O Lord reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. God's people are saying, this is our situation. This is our situation. We have brought this upon us. And only you, only you are able to save. Do you see that there? It's just like the Psalms that we're doing. This is our situation. This is, this is the situation that we find ourselves but. See, in their lament, they are able to reconnect their hearts to what they know to be true. And what do they know to be true in the midst of this? Lord, you reign. You reign over everything. Folks, in the midst of whatever you are going through, in the midst of the process of lament, remember remember that you are able to say to God, remember your grace. But in the midst of recognizing whatever is going on, you're able to say, but God, you are over all of this. You will reign forever and that your throne will endure for generations. We have a God who is over all things, who is in all things, who is sustaining all things, who is bringing about his purposes for his glory and for our good as his people. And we are not there to question his ways in terms of of writing him off. But yes, we are to come to him and call him to remember us. But knowing that we have a loving, gracious, compassionate God who is over all things and he will reign even if it feels like he is not. Folks, lament enables us to bring those truths to mind. But this I call to mind. But this I know to be true even if this is what I am feeling. Reign. The next one is, and the last one is restore. Verse 21 of chapter 5. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. This is our situation, and only you can restore us. Only by your grace. Folks, can I say this? Restoration is only found in God. It is only found in God. 
only in him. He, will be, he is the only one who has in and through his son, Jesus Christ, has restored us to be his and will restore us into the fullness of that when he returns with a new creation, a world without pain, brokenness, or sorrow. Only him. And folks, it is heartbreaking, heartbreaking when you see people and walk with people in the midst of their pain who are seeking restoration in so many other things and rejecting the only source of restoration that is God himself. Finding it here, finding it there, finding it in this technique, finding it in this book, finding it in this mystic, finding it in this security, finding it in this person, and they reject in light of all of that, they're still rejecting the only one who can restore restore us to himself and restore us to what it is to be truly his people. It is heartbreaking when God's people reject the restoration that they know to be true. See here, the suffering still lingers. The city is still in a mess. The consequences of the sin is everywhere, but the process of lament has enabled them to call on God, asking to remember, and they're mining out, declaring what is true, and they recognize only he can restore them. Only he can restore you, folks. Only him. What's really interesting, that that's not the last verse. The last verse is this. Restore us to yourself, O, o Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. It's interesting that the, the longest lament in the Bible ends with a prayer, but the last verse, verse 22, it's as if they know the truth, but struggle with the certainty of it. <laughs> Is he still angry? Is he still angry? I know that my restoration is only found in him. We know that. But if you're still angry and you've still rejected us, well, is he still angry? Folks, what a blessing it is as Christian people to live this side of the cross and resurrection. What a blessing it is to be new covenant believers. What do I mean by that? That all these people live before God, God, the wonderful time when he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these people were working through religion and, and trying to figure it out and rejecting God. But God was faithful to his promise. I will restore you. I will redeem you. Yes, they were punished for the sin, but I will restore you. I will redeem you. So there was a sense for those that were wrestling with the promises of God. With Well, is he still angry? Is he still angry? What is this? What is going to happen? And what does he do? That while we still sinners he sent Christ who died for us see we know that he is not angry why do we know that he's not angry because the holy anger of God against sin and brokenness and against our sin and rejection of him was poured upon his son Jesus not us amen is he angry no he's not has he rejected us no he hasn't you know what he's done he's brought us in to be part of his family what a blessing it is folks to be on this side in Christ, we know that he know, is no longer angry towards his people and that he never rejected them. He is no longer angry with you, folks, and he does not reject you. If you trust him in and through faith, 
that Jesus Christ has dealt with the just punishments of you rejecting God. If, he, if you have your trust in him, he's not angry against your sin. And there is great hope and restoration found in him, not only now, but for an eternity. And you know what, folks? We see foreshadows of that in Lamentations. We see foreshadows of it. Do you remember chapter 3, verses 1 to 3? I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely again, against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Verse 6, he has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Who can say those things? Jesus can say those things. I am the man who has seen the affliction under the rod of his wrath. God, in all his holiness, poured, poured his wrath upon Jesus and afflicted him, the perfect son of God, instead of us. It was Jesus that he put into the dwell of the darkness like the dead of old. But praise God, praise God, that that sacrifice on the cross was enough. Why do we know? Because three days later, he rose him, raised him from the dead. Amen. Amen. At 31, 32 of Lamentations 3, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Christ has, God has compassion for us in and through Christ. His steadfast love is shown to us in and through Christ. And because Christ was not cast off forever, those of us who have faith in him will not be cast off forever. Hallelujah. Amen. Folks, we have a savior in whom we can place all our eternal security who was someone who was over all so we can trust and run to him, knowing that he will never let us down. And we have one who has promised to put the right wrong and renew the brokenness of the world. We have our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who understands our pain and has lived a life of lament that expressed a trust in his Father. And because of him, Jesus, we can lament. Because of him, we can openly come with boldness to the throne of grace. Because of Jesus, we know that God the Father is not angry with us. And we know that he does and will restore us in all its fullness. Folks, how kind is our God to give us these words and these scriptures to help us live in the brokenness of this world while we await his return. How kind is that? How kind is that? There are people putting their trust in so many other things that live their lives just like some of the people in this. Yeah, I'm trusting that, but are you still angry with me? I'm doing what I think you say, but are you still angry with me? As Christian people, we know that he's not angry with us. We know that he adores us. We know that he loves us. Folks, can I say this? Whatever you have done, whatever you've done, in Christ, God has not forsaken you. He adores you. Christian, whatever you have done or has been done to you and you feel shame and you feel that you can't even come to God with it, can I say this? He loves you. He wants to pour compassion on you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to hold you. Come to your Father through the process of lament. For those of us who are here, 
who have not put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but recognize with some of the things that I've said today. Recognize the, 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 the thing of, I've put my trust in that person, or I've all my hopes in that, and they've gone, and, and they've either let me down, or unfortunately they've died, or, or I had all this, and now it's gone, and I, I recognize that actually there's, there's nothing in that. Can I assure you that in Jesus Christ, there is true satisfaction, and there is true hope, and there is true security, and he will not let you down. And he has displayed that for you in that he died in your place and has taken what you deserve. And it is a simple turning to him and saying, Jesus, thank you for what you have done for me. God the Father, I am sorry for my rejection of you and he will welcome you in. And I'm telling you this now, the pain may not go. The suffering may not cease. But there will be a peace in the midst of finding hope and meaning in him. And you can be rest assured that one day that will all end when he returns. How kind is God to give us these words? Not just to leave us till that time, but to help us walk, us, walk it through. Lamentation, giving voice to pain, a lament, a prayer in pain that leads us to trust in God, and my prayer is that we do that well for his glory, for our good, and for the sake of those who are trying to make sense of the world without Jesus, and that they see it and turn to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you and praise you that you're a kind, good, good father who's perfect in all of your ways. And I thank you that your kindness and your mercy and your grace have all been seen and shown in the sending of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we survey and think and meditate on him and on the cross, we just want to praise and thank you. We see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowing down. And as Christian people, our response is, take my life. Remove from my gaze all the other worldly things and idols and people that I put my trust in and my hope in. Let me show that I can trust you because of what you've done for me, Jesus, and who you are and who I now am because of you. Help, help, help me, help us, help each of us to do that. Help us to be a people who can lament together well. Help us to lament on behalf of others. Father, when we don't even have the words to say, bring people around us. Bring those people around us who are able to even just read your word to give us the language. Help us in that way. And Lord, through that process, as you reveal to us things that we put our trust in, Help us to see that that is your grace and that, you, that is your mercy and, mercy. and help us to confess and repent and turn. Help us do that, we pray. Bless my brothers and sisters. Bless them and keep them. Make your face shine upon them. And I pray that they will know your peace for your glory's sake. Amen. Let's sing.